to the full mission in March 2015. And it was great to be reminded of our plans for outreach, both in terms of the Taste Week, uh, when we'll all have the chance to put on events uh, for the whole of our community to invite our friends to, and then the life to the full week a month later in March, when we'll have a week of events here at Holy Trinity uh, for people to hear, experience, and explore the Christian faith. And I, I'm also so thankful for the journey between now and then, as we prepare ourselves to share the good news of God uh, with others. But that phrase, the good news of God with others, that that begs two rather important questions, doesn't it? Who is this God of whom we speak? And what is his good news? If we're going to be engaged in mission in a very intentional way, we need to be clear about answers to both those questions. Who is this God that we proclaim and what is his good news? I'll tell you this, there's a lot of confusion in our society about the answers to those questions. Rowan Williams, when he was Archbishop of Canterbury, used to say that it wasn't the case that people in our society had rejected Christianity. It just, they didn't know what it was really all about. They were indifferent to something that they'd never really understood. If you were here on Monday at the APCM, you'd have heard me talk about David Cameron's contribution to the debate on faith and public life by an article he wrote in the Church Times just before Easter. I'm not going to rehearse that argument now, although it is online and, dare I say, worth a listen. But in summary, I drew attention to the way in which David Cameron found it quite easy to speak about the church, but much harder to talk about God. And he spoke a number of times about the good news of the church, but on no occasion about what the good news of God was about. David Cameron is not unusual, by the way. I think it was Alan Bennett who said that the British people get uniquely embarrassed when you talk about God and start examining their cardigan buttons. This term, in the light of the life to the full mission that lies ahead of us, and a society that is unclear about who God is, let alone what they think about him, I want us to grow in our confidence of who God is and what his good news is all about. It's my prayer, actually, over the next three months, that we will understand more clearly, love more deeply, and serve more fully the God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the route we're going to take to fire this confidence are some ancient words called the Apostles' Creed. Familiar words to some of us, perhaps. We're going to explain all of them in depth, much like we explored the Lord's Prayer a few years ago. What's the journey ahead? Well, why don't we have the words on the screen and also on the batting order, reverse side of the batting order. Why don't we say the Apostles' Creed together as a bit of a journey about this is what we're going to look at over the next three months. Normally we stand up to say the Creed, but on this occasion you have special dispensation to sit down, enjoy it. Together we say... I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, He ascended into heaven. 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, today, with that creed in mind, I want us to do two things. First of all, I want to introduce the creed to us and explore a little bit of what it means to say, I believe. And then I want to look at that kind of first statement of faith, which is a belief in a God who is creator of heaven and earth. There's a batting order uh, on, in your new sheet of a sort of nice cream colour. And uh, we're going to need your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I'm not going to give you the page reference, because you can find it yourself. It's right at the beginning of the Bible, which I understand is a very good place to start. So first of all then, I believe in God. Okay, I want to do two things in relation to that statement. Number one is introduce the idea of a statement of faith at all, the believe bit. And number two, look at what it means to believe in God. The Apostles' Creed, therefore, starts with the words, I believe. It is a statement of faith. And as such, it goes back through the Old Testament and the early church. I put some references on your sheet to places in the New Testament uh, where the early believers expressed in a set of words what they believed about God. And you can look at them at home. And in fact, Steve read out one of those statements of faith. I think Colossians chapter 1 is an early statement of faith of who God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And the Apostles' Creed that we're looking at this term stands in that tradition of confessions of faith that's there in the scriptures. Now the title, Apostles' Creed, does not imply it was written by the Apostles. The earliest written reference we have to it is 390 AD, although it was clearly widely accepted before that and used in baptismal vows. What it means though is it proclaims the faith proclaimed by the Apostles. The Apostles' Creed describes the apostolic faith that was revealed in the Bible that was at the heart of the early church. And as such, it is both concise in that it describes the heart of the faith and not the fringe, but also comprehensive in that it covers the main basis of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I guess if you ask me, well, why are we looking at the Apostles' Creed as a church? I, I would give you three reasons. Number one, it's going to remind us of the heart of our faith. Number two, it's going to expand our view of Jesus. And number three, it's going to help us explore some less visited but really important parts of our faith. And all of those three are important as we get ready for the Life to the Full mission next year. But the second thing we need to look at is what's it mean to say, I believe in God? I think it's really important that we understand these words correctly. Because I think it's easy to kind of hear the phrase, I believe in God, and to kind of see it as a bit of a tick box exercise, sort of, I believe that God exists. And so we can tick Christian on the census form and then get on with life. I don't think that's what's entailed with the phrase, I believe in. I believe in, not I believe that, I believe in is an expression of trust of confidence. In fact, it's a transfer of trust and confidence from the self to another thing or person. Let me describe what I mean. 
I don't know if you're a nervous flyer or not. Uh, I'm not anymore, but I remember when I was, because I didn't fly until I was 16. Uh, and as a child, it all seemed to be terribly unlikely that a large piece of metal could stay up in the air for any long period of time. And I think more than one when I used, once when I used to fly uh, for the first few times, as I did up my seatbelt, I said to myself, I believe in this aeroplane. Now, when I said that, perhaps you still do, that's great. Well, when I said that, I wasn't saying that I believe that the aeroplane existed, that it wasn't a mirage. I was saying I believe that the aeroplane could carry me to my destination. I was placing my confidence not in my own ability to fly, but in that of the aeroplane. That's what it meant to say, I believe in. And that is what it means to say, I believe in God. It doesn't mean to say that I believe that God exists, the Apostles' Creed, the whole Bible takes that as a given. But that I trust in God, I place my confidence in, I turn from believing in myself to believing in him. If you like, I throw in my lot with him, I'm holding on to him, I believe in God, not myself. That is what it means to say the creed. It is not a tick box exercise, I believe, X, Y, Z, but something that involves the transfer of our whole lives. And in fact, one of the things we'll be doing as we go through the creed this term is to look at what it means to live it out with our head, our heart, and our hands. What does it mean to believe in the God who is... Uh, revealed in the New Testament and described in the Apostles' Creed, how does believing in that God change the way we think, change the way we feel, and change the way we act? Because if it doesn't affect those three, then it's just words that fly off the surface. We're not getting in the aeroplane, if you like. And at this point, therefore, I want us all to ask a question of ourselves. As we set out on this journey for the next three months through the Apostles' Creed, are we prepared to go at it at a deep level? Not as a tick box exercise, but praying that God will show us more of himself in the weeks and months to come. Are we prepared to have our heads open to think more deeply? Our hearts open to respond more worshipfully? And our hands open to act more faithfully. Because that is what saying the phrase, I believe in God, really invites. I believe in God. Let's move on. Because for the rest of our time together this morning, I want us to consider that phrase, creator of heaven and earth. Now, it's not the first description of God in the creed. The words Father Almighty come in the middle. But we don't have the chance to do every phrase in detail. We cover the fatherhood of God a lot when we looked at the Lord's Prayer. And a key aspect of the fatherhood of God in the New Testament is that he created the world. And this, of course, is where the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 Genesis 1 is a chapter that has occasioned much discussion over the years, particularly in the debate between creationism and evolution. But I think some of that debate has missed the wood for the trees. The aim of Genesis 1, it seems to me, is not to describe how the world was made, but who made it. That first phrase of Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. 
He is the main actor here. The one who calls by his spirit and his word all things into existence. Genesis 1 is for me a poetic description of the creative power of God who over many years brought this universe into being. I do not believe in a seven-day creation and neither do I believe that a faithful reading of Genesis chapter 1 requires one to discount evolution as a process God used in his creation. If you want to know more, please read this book by Dennis Alexander on the bookstall, Creation or Evolution, Do We Have to Choose? Or go to a great website, talk on our website by David Wilkinson on God and Science. Just type in David Wilkinson, Holy Trinity, Claygate. Or come along tonight to our talk by Alistair Coles on faith on the brain, because Alistair is brilliant on how God was involved in the evolutionary process. So the debate between science and faith is not my area of expertise. But as I say, I don't think that's what Genesis 1 is really all about. I think, in fact, it's possible to trace in Genesis 1 five truths about creation that we don't find there, but actually we find throughout the whole of Scripture. Five truths about God and his creation that, if you like, form the bedrock for all the rest of the revelation of God. Very briefly, number one, God is the creator of heaven and earth. All that exists, every star and seed, does so through his creative power. Nothing was made that he did not make, number one. Number two, creation is good. That point is affirmed a number of times in Genesis chapter 1, that God made a good world without the evil sin and death that we see in our world today. And while the world is broken through our sin, it is still beautiful. Three, human beings have a unique place in God's creation. Made in the image of God, we reflect his character in a way that is unique among the created animals. We are therefore not just animals, but people able to contemplate and know God. Human beings are different. Four, human beings are made male and female. Gender is not an accident, but part of how God made us. And the difference between our gender is necessary for the continuation of the human line. Hence the move from verse 27, which talks about male and female, he created them, to verse 28, where he says, be fruitful and multiply in number. There's a connection there that is not accidental. And fifthly, work and rest are part of the divine pattern of creation. The principle of creativity and then Sabbath rest, assumed in the rest of the Bible, goes back to the created order of God. I think that is what is tied up in the phrase, I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. Not simply that he caused all things to happen, but that he made it good. That he made it with a unique place for human beings, created male and female, and with a divine pattern of work and trust. To say, therefore, I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, is to say quite a lot. It's to say far more than God is the man who lit the match. It's to say a God who created all that is with a distinct pattern and order. But the question is still there. What does it mean to live it out? Back to our head, heart, hands. 
What's it mean to believe in a creator God with our head, our heart and our hands? Now listen, I haven't got time to go through all of these in detail. I just want to sketch out a few hints. First of all, the head. What's it mean to believe in a creator God with our minds? There's lots that we could say here about how belief in a creator God challenges the belief that evolution is all there is. But I want to offer one thought. It might appear slightly left field, but I think it's really important. I think belief in a creator God changes the way we see ourselves. Belief in a creator God changes the way we see ourselves. Let me explain what I mean by the use of two examples. I think to affirm our trust in a creator God means that we see ourselves as created and not our own. We see ourselves as created and not our own. You see, I think one of the biggest cultural shifts in the UK over the last 25 years has been the growing significance of personal autonomy. What is that? Well, personal autonomy is basically the belief that I belong to me. That's what personal, I belong to me. I decide what is right and wrong, and so I should have control over my life. Uh, And so there has been an ongoing privatising of morality and rejection of state or any external control or modification, including any external moral framework. I am at the centre, I decide what is right, I belong to me. Uh, The debate over euthanasia is a really good example of this. Twenty years ago, the arguments over euthanasia were largely about stopping unnecessary suffering. People shouldn't be allowed to die in pain was the main argument employed. But as pain management and hospice provision has continued to improve, the argument has now subtly changed. Now the argument goes like this. It is my life and I should be able to end it how I want and with the help of whom I want. It is really interesting if you listen to so many debates in our world today, they centre around the belief that it's my life and I should be allowed to do what I want with it. Now, belief in a creator God challenges that way of thinking about ourselves. Because if God is creator, we are created. Our life is not our own. It is a gift of God. Now that is really good news because it means we have a dignity and a value that go far beyond simply what we can do or earn or contribute. But it also means that we are in one sense accountable to the one who made us. We see ourselves as created and not our own. The second example of how we see ourselves differently is that we see ourselves as male and female. I mentioned this earlier, but this is a central part of the creative act of God, making us male and female. And if the changes of the last 25 years have been a rise in personal autonomy, then I believe a significant change in the next 25 years will be society's understanding of gender as something that doesn't matter at all. 
And I believe we saw the start of this in the debate on same-sex marriage. Many of the arguments for same-sex marriage went like this. Gender doesn't matter. As long as two people love each other, they should be allowed to get married. But belief in a creator God challenges the sufficiency of that argument. For a Christian understanding of a creator God is that he made us male and female. And the reason why the Church of England maintains the view that marriage is between one man and one woman is because marriage echoes the created order of God itself. In the face of a society that is beginning to say that gender doesn't matter at all, to say, I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, challenges us to say, yes, it does. And let me be clear, this is not about feminism or equal rights or the capacity of women to do jobs that men do, including being bishops, all of which I happen to support. It is about maintaining a worldview that gender is a God-given difference to the world. I think if we believe in a creator God, we need to see ourselves differently, as created and not our own. And we need to see ourselves as male or female. What about our hearts? How does belief in a creator God fire our hearts? Here the argument is somewhat simpler, you may be glad to hear. In brief, creation is meant to fire our hearts in the worship of the creator. That is to say, when we see something beautiful or awe-inspiring, our task is not simply to say how wonderful it is, but actually give praise to the one who caused it to be made. That way we do not worship creation, but the creator. I remember a chap I used to know in uh, uh, Basingstoke, in our previous church, and uh, he was a gardener, and he just loved uh, being in God's creation and using it as a, as a tool for his worship. I remember he came around to our garden one day and he'd sort of cupped a full, fully open poppy in his hand. And he said, look at that, Philip, look at the detail. You know the poppy looks like inside. And he said, he said, you look at that and tell me that we can't believe in a creator God. He used the uh, creation that he saw to fire his worship. I find, it's the, I find it's the little things and the big things that do it for me. The rock rose currently out in my garden that has a deep red that you can't describe. Or the hills in Scotland, which I'm off to see again later this month, that has a majesty all of their own. When we're out with the boys, Annabelle and I try and remind them who made the world. We try and use the creation to help us praise God together. And although we think we're doing it for them, it's really for us. So that we praise God not just in church on a Sunday for his creation, but when we actually see it. Creation can lift our hearts to the creator next time, perhaps even today. When you see the beauty of God's creation, why not say a prayer of thanks? With your children, with your husband or wife, say a prayer of thanks because creation is meant to lift our hearts in worship to the creator. Thirdly, our hands. How does belief in a creator God actually change the way we live? Well, I think it comes back to the unique place that we have as human beings in God's creation. 
As we saw earlier, this is a central part of the Genesis 1 narrative, and indeed the whole of the Bible. If you look at verses 27 to 28, verses 26 to 28, you'll see that with that unique role in God's creation as God's image bearers, comes a unique responsibility. In verse 26 and verse 28, the task is given to rule. To rule. Now I think that we need to be clear that rule does not mean exploit. Any more than the Queen's rule over us is to exploit her subjects. To rule over something is to behave in such a way as to enable those under us to have the capacity to flourish. To believe in a creator God means to recognise that we have a mandate to care so that God's creation flourishes. That is what it means to rule. And it's for that reason, I think it's absolutely essential that Christians should be at the forefront of caring for God's creation, that we take this rule creation mandate seriously. We should be known as believers in a creator God. We should be known as people who drive our cars less than others, who recycle more, who use finite resources carefully, who care for the causes and impacts of climate change. Not because we buy into some green environmentalist agenda, but because we believe and care for God's creation. If you want to find out some more There's some great resources on the Arosha and the Tear Fund websites, two Christian organisations that encourage Christians to take creation care seriously. Now listen, we've covered some ground already this morning in terms of the Apostles' Creed and what it means to believe in a creator God. I I suppose what I've just tried to do is give a bit of a flavour for the term ahead. That to examine our belief in God is not going to be a theoretical exercise. This isn't a theological study course. To examine the Apostles' Creed together and actually say, what does it mean to say, I believe, is going to stretch our minds, fire our hearts, and affect our daily lives. But let me come back to our opening question. Where's the good news? Where's the good news? What's the good news in the God who made heaven and earth? But in a sense, I want to say, watch this space, because the best news is yet to come. That comes later on in the creed. But for today, let me end with this. There is a God of infinite power and beauty who made the world and all that is. And if ever your heart has been lifted by something you have seen or touched or smelt then you have caught a glimpse of that amazing God. I remember a year ago, I was visiting the Winchcombs in Jordan, and we went down to Petra, and we stayed in a Bedouin camp outside Petra in the middle of the desert. And there was nobody else in the camp, and the lights went out. And we went into the central seating area, and the stars were like brighter than I've ever seen them before. And Psalm 8 came to mind. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You know the stars by name. Ever you've sensed a creator God and just your place within that. That is what it means to worship and recognize him. But it gets better. Because not only did God make the world, he also made you. In his image, 
as someone precious in his sight. Male or female, he gave you life as something precious and beautiful. You are not an accident any more than this world is. You are part of the workmanship of God. And in the weeks to come, we will see that the creator God loved you so much that when you and I turned our backs on him, he didn't give up on us. But that's for another day. For today, let's praise our creator God who made the world and all that is and made you and me and calls us to recognize and respond with head, heart and hands. Amen.